Welcome back to Other Tone. What up, fam? Scott, how are you, man? I'm doing all right. I mean, how uplifting was this conversation that we had with Stacey Abrams? Man, I'm still... I'm like still high off of that. This was, uh, you know, a great episode where we got a chance to speak to somebody who's literally involved in changing the world. This wasn't like an overnight success story. This was someone who had a plan. That's what really killed me when she said, you know, she 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 planned this out and she just stuck to it, man. It's just super laser focused and I was happy to be able to speak to her. Yeah. No, I mean she she set a target for herself and accomplished it. It's amazing. A lot of information, man. I loved it. Just a heads up, we recorded this interview with leader Stacey Abrams the day after the inauguration. Obviously, she's a very busy woman, so we had to catch up with her on Zoom. So at points of the interview, you may hear some audio blips, but Stacey was dropping so many gems that we decided to keep the conversation intact. This is leader Stacey Abrams on Other Tone. Other Tone, Tone, Tone. One of the most powerful, powerful human beings that we have seen in action in the last two years. Thank you. I'm so honored to meet you. Listen, you are the seat flipper. You are the (laughs) state colored flipper turner. And I... Anything you need from me, I am at your attention, never at ease. Thank I just you. want to say that before we start anything, you're, you are something else. You are, you are other. You are incredibly kind, very generous. Uh, I was looking around to figure out who you were talking about at first. I know somebody else is going to do the call with us, but, uh, but thank you. I was going to say, I met your number two at this events, this Emerson Collective, and uh, you weren't able to attend that day. And I, I, I was wanting to meet you, but she's incredibly impressive as well. She is. She's absolutely yes, amazing. Well, I was going to say thank you not only for this and for the support you gave us. Thank you for being the soundtrack to so much between the moment when uh, John Lewis danced to Happy at that event for me in 2018 and just the, your soundtrack to Hidden's Figures has not gotten nearly enough praise. It wow. It is truly one of the most electrifying and humanizing albums. It is absolutely wonderful. And when I am in a bad space, it is one of the things I play. Wow. Wow. It's <laughs> huge. Well, I am I'm so honored, man. No one talks about that film as much. Um, but it was an honor to work on that. You know, Katherine Johnson obviously was from Virginia and again another strong, amazing uh human being. Uh, yes, she was black. Yes, she was a woman, but her spirit is, you know, a lot like yours. You all are just, what you do is just, it's just, there's nothing even, and even close to you. So I'm, I'm honored. I didn't even get a chance to speak to everybody. I spoke to everybody and then I just saw you and I just like (laughs) immediately just went in on the praise because we need to hear it. People need to hear how special and how incredibly impactful and effective their existence is can be in other people other people's lives. Thank you. Truly. Thank you. All of the stuff he said, I I felt it, all the stuff he said, but he just said so, you know, much better, but my sentiments exactly. Thank you. What I was really interested in hearing about is like 
how do you start something like this? Like, I know it took, it took years and years and years, but like to really uh, convince people that, you know, this is what we need to do and that, it, that it's possible. Like, when did you realize that it was possible? Mm. So I was in the state legislature starting in 2006. I served for four years in the state legislature and sort of the, the if you take a really big sort of wide panning out of my life, I grew up in Mississippi. Uh, in a working poor family with parents who struggled every day, worked every day, but always made certain that we understood our lack of resources would never be an excuse for our lack of engagement. Like we were supposed to do what we could to help others, even if we didn't know if it would work. And and certainly, even if it didn't benefit us directly, our job, my dad would say, having nothing is not an excuse for doing nothing. Wow. What brought you from Mississippi to Georgia? So my parents, uh, when I was growing up, my mom was a librarian and my dad was a shipyard worker. They were both called into the United Methodist Ministry when they were, or they answered the call when they were around 40. I'm the second of six children. And my parents, my older sister was going off to college. But my mom and dad believe that education is important, even if no matter what you're called to do, you need to make sure you're good at it. And so they decided to go to graduate school to get their master's of divinity at the age of 40 to become Methodist ministers. Wow. And so they both were admitted to Emory University, wow. to the Candler School of Theology, and they packed us up. My older sister was at Agnes Scott here in Georgia. They moved the rest of us. So five of us, or actually so total of eight of us moved to Georgia so mom and dad could go to grad school. They finished, uh, they stayed an extra year so my sister Leslie could finish high school. They moved back to Mississippi. I was at Spelman. And when I finished up with grad school and law school, Georgia was the only place for me. Mm. And so we, I grew up with that ethos. I brought it into politics with me when I ran for the state legislature. And after sitting there for four years, watching our party try to do its best, but our party had gone from being in power for 130 years to losing power by the time I got there. and they were good people doing the best they could, but it's hard to go from having power and privilege to having nothing. My position was, and I told my colleagues this when I ran for leader, I'm like, I've been a minority for a very long time. I am really good at it. There is a way you have to navigate spaces when you come from nothing. And when people are used to having everything, it's harder for them to adapt. Those of mm -hmm. us who didn't have anything, we've we become very resourceful. And so I was sitting in the legislature. It was one of the last nights of the session. And there were two bills. One bill that gave a massive tax cut to wealthy retirees. And the second bill stripped poor people in Georgia of a $5 tax credit. Some got five, some got 50, some got $100. And the same people who argued for cutting the taxes for people who made so much money, they were just living off of their retirement income. These same people had such meanness towards poor people. In fact, going so far as to saying $5 isn't that big a deal. I remember when $5 meant that I didn't have to walk three miles to get home because I could take a cab or I could get the bus. And I was so enraged that night that I thought, I've only been here four years. There are people who've been here a lot longer but I know what we can do. I know the people we need to serve and I have a plan. So I ran for leader. I was elected by my colleagues. I then 
really researched what was happening with our party, what was happening with our state, what was happening with the demography. And to sort of bring it all full circle, put together this PowerPoint that said, here's the problem we have. Here's why people don't listen to us. Here's why we're not in power. Here's the situation that people are in and here's what they need from us. Here's what we need to be talking about. And then I did the math. Here's how long it will take us based on the changing demographics of our state, based on Republican power, based on the election cycles and based on the fact that we're in deep debt. Here's how long I think it will take us to get back to power. And the PowerPoint said it was 2010 to 2020. Uh, And then I spent the next decade really going year by year, talking to people, asking folks to think about what I was saying and trying to convince people to just pay attention. And then I started begging for money to pay for the things I wanted to do. And a big part of it, so to your fundamental question, it was having a clear plan. It was also giving a clear timeline when you lie about what you think you can do. The first time you trip, the first time you miss the mark, it it undercuts everything else you say. And so I was always clear, I'm going to try for 10. And if we get two, we're going to celebrate. And mm-hmm. I was I was clear about that. And when we didn't get the 10, I would then go back to the same people and say, okay, here are the two we got, and this is why we're excited. But here's the reason we didn't get the 10. I can fix two of the five problems, but I can't do a thing about the rest of them yet. And so it was being honest with the organizers on the ground, being honest with the donors, being honest with the with the the pundits in the media, but it was also being willing to be accused of lying and not understanding how to do my job and not being a good person. And, you know, a big part of it was being willing to be the focal point, not only of what we should do, but being a focal point for when it didn't happen. Because I think people forget that when you don't succeed and people's hopes get high, they need somebody to be angry with, someone to blame. And so part of it was being willing to be the person who got blamed for a lot of things I had nothing to do with and some mm-hmm. things I did have something to do with. Um, but I think all of those pieces, you know, over time came together. Now, now that we're on the other side, you know, you know, defeat has, you know, defeat's an orphan, but victory has a thousand parents. And so I've tried my best to be celebratory of those who did the work there's not a space to chastise those who didn't believe because the minute you do that, you're creating a new opportunity for failure. And so I'd Mm -hmm. rather celebrate and recognize everyone who was a part of getting there, no matter when they got on board, but to do so in a way that always understands that this is hard, it is mean, and it's not over. How do we take that apparatus that you've built and start using it in other states and, and, how do we continue to grow it? So Pharrell met my uh, partner in progress, uh, Lauren Growargo. She's the CEO of Fair Fight. She has been with me, working with me since uh, 2012. And one thing we did in 2019 was that Fair Fight is a perfect example. We started it in Georgia, but in August of 2019, we expanded Fair Fight to 20 states. And so we embedded ourselves in those states by going in to find local people and giving them the roadmap for how to just address the basics of voter suppression. We can do that with building building states that can be more resilient and can be transformed. But part of it is it has to be organic. You don't want to drop me into other states. 
I don't know the playing fields. I don't know the people. And politics is personal. And if you don't know what's happening in a space, you can't do the work. So I would say there are people out there who are ready to do this work. Their first job is, you know, one thing I did when I became leader was I traveled to 150 of 159 counties. It took me some time, but I went to every county first that any of my members represented. And then I went to any county that had a Democratic Party. And then I went to any county where they had an invitation for me to come. A big part of it, it sounds basic, but big part of it is just showing up and understanding what the challenges are where you live. If you are in Texas, you have a different set of challenges than if you're in Louisiana or if you're in Florida or if you're in in Michigan. And so it's being willing to first ask the questions, what is not working here? Not what are they doing? Ask what are you not doing? What are the issues that people care about and what are you doing or not doing already? Don't hold yourself accountable or, or excuse yourself. Just ask the question. Number two, ask who else is asking that question. We didn't do this alone. And, and that's why I'm constantly lifting up these other groups. We may not have had the same methodology or even the same end goal, but I knew other people were working. So part of my job was to find out who they were. And then when you succeed, lift others with you. When we raised money, I shared the money. So when I did the New Georgia Project, we gave money to other groups. Just now, and when Fair Fight raised millions of dollars, we gave $25 million to smaller organizations because we knew they didn't have the platform and the reach, but they had the responsibilities. So we made sure they had the resources. When we see it as zero sum, my success means your failure or my money is only mine, then you're not gonna get where you need to go. You've gotta make sure everyone has enough to keep moving so that all of you eventually can have enough to grow. Amazing. I mean, listening to you talk, um, looking, you know, listening to the way that you think about things, you know, so much about the American dream was was a, a created thing. I, I say it all the time. Mm-hmm. The American dream was was actually designed by this guy, Edward Bernays, the guy that uh, created the term uh, public relations. Um, but if there ever really was an American dream, it's you. It really is. It's like you're, and it's interesting you brought up hidden figures because it's like you and Catherine, you, you're, you're, you, you all are mathematicians. You're women who are mathematicians. It's like you said, you did a computational, you know, um, analysis that, that basically illustrated that it was going to take from 2010 all the way to 2020. Wow. Computer. And to stay the course, you know, right. to not lose steam you know, when they come after you and try to like demonize you and turn everything against you. I mean, it's amazing. If, I mean, I, I love my country, but if people really, really, really realize it's like, man, you get mad at these guys at the Capitol. It's like they learn insurrection from our founding fathers. And when they did these things, they thought they were doing it for what felt like something good to them. And it's like what you've done is you didn't tear anything down. You didn't burn anything up. And if anything, you just looked at what was there. And like I said, you did like this incredible analysis of how you could engineer change. And 
it was done in a way that is only inspiring people. Like you said, not everybody's going to get it, but the people who got it, even at the last minute, you give them the praise because they got it. And that, that's a leader. You're an incredible leader. Thank you. I, I hope I, I didn't say I, anything I, offensive about no, the no, no. In, I, insurrection. No, yeah. I, I don't think it's offensive. I, I would couch it slightly differently, though. Sure. The, the revolution was grounded, at least in theory, in the expansion of liberty, the expansion of access, the expansion of autonomy. Mm-hmm. What we saw happen on January 6th was a reaction to that expansion of liberty. These are people who are angry because they thought the wrong people voted. And yep. these are people who are angry and willing to murder our leadership, not because they were denied their rights. It was because they didn't like the outcome. Right. And that's mm-hmm. why I, w- I would put them in different categories that when you are rebelling in order to expand access, when your rebellion is grounded in giving more to more, that is very different than trying to take away because you don't like the composition or the color or the outcome. Mm-hmm. That's the part that that I think is enraging people. In 2016, more people voted for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump, but not a single person on that losing side stormed the Capitol. Mm-hmm. We didn't demand that we get to wipe out the nation because we don't like the outcome. Our job is to do, I think, part of what I do, which is I don't, I, when my election happened, I have no, I have no right to victory. No politician running for office has the right to win. But as a citizen of Georgia, I had the right to make certain that the votes were counted, that the people who wanted to participate could. And so my fight was to ensure that every person had their votes counted. And when they counted all the votes we still had access to, I didn't win. And so then I started to try to change the system so that the people who were denied never faced that denial again. The people who got mad and stormed the Capitol, they weren't angry because people were denied. They were angry because they didn't win. And it's the moment we think that we are entitled to victory, that we are entitled to having our own way that's the space where I think the, the difference happens. And so I, 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 I understood your point. I just wanted to yeah. clarify it because, you know, people get out there and suddenly they're going to yeah, say, yeah, that yeah, you, yeah. yeah. So I just <laughs> yes, want to make sure yes. I've been in politics yes. for a really long time. So I wanted to give you an opportunity yes. to <laughs> <laughs> revise and extend your remarks. Yes, ma'am. I will say I, I agree with you. Um, I just think that that entitlement has been generationally taught yes. and instilled, oh. you know, and, and we don't have to get all into the in the into the weeds of all that. But I, and by the way, I just want to put this out there: I wasn't happy with the result of um, you know <laughs> you not winning a governor because I, <laughs> I I I just felt like it was a little hardwired. I'll put it that way: hardwired. Mm-hmm. How's that? Yes. I'll be po- I poetic think about accurate. it. I felt I it was hardwired, <laughs> right? Um, we've seen you know the the toxic mentality of like gerrymandering and what it can do. Um, and there's a lot of hard wiring that's down there, but um, I have to say that Georgia may have been politically hardwired one way at one point. It's amazing to see this new Wi-Fi system that you have installed. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I mean, look, I, um, I, I wrote this book that came out last year. It's called Our Time Is Now, Power, Purpose, and the Fight for Fair America. And Scott, to your earlier question, I write down a lot of the stuff I'm saying here. I write about it in the book, but... Pharrell, to your point, 
voter suppression isn't this new phenomenon. It was written into the Constitution. Our nation was built on this premise that we were going to deny humanity, access, and citizenship to certain people that we needed to be a nation, but we refused to include to be a democracy. And so you're absolutely right. And it's important that we understand that these aren't newfangled ideas. These are indeed, this isn't a bug in the system. It's the programming. Yes. You're, you're awesome. We were born <laughs> in the same year, by the way. Yeah. So I, I take pride in that. We're 73 babies. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm such a fan and I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I don't know everything about you. I just know the stuff that you do. It's like LeBron. It's like, I know him. We're friendly. You know, whenever he like wins something, I'm like, ah, good, great job, bro. Like, you know, we, we do that back and forth. Um, but you know, you meet people that are just like different. You might not know everything about them, but something that they do tells you everything about them. And I find that with your work. You know, I find that with your work. It is very clear and evident as to who you are based on what you do. Yep. I um, <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> but I got a question. Yes. Um, how 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 uh, excited are you about the new administration coming in? Like, how how do you feel? I just feel uh, excited in there, but I just want no, to know no, your excite- take on it. No, look, I I am so grateful for any role that I was able to play in making it come to fruition. Oh, and one. I think, thank you. <laughs> and I think that the what happened yesterday, the revoking of the Muslim ban, the suspension of deportations without you know, actually understanding if we're deporting someone who's a danger to America or someone who simply, you know, has been trying to make a life and, you know, went to the grocery store on the wrong day and got picked up. Mm-hmm. The fact that they, this administration has started by doing the things it said it would do is extraordinary. I want to caution folks, though, because, you know, we protest in the streets to say what we need. We protest at the ballot box to elect the people we want. But then we've got to make certain we are holding the halls of power accountable. And Mm -hmm. that means that we can't assume that because they are in office and have good intentions, that they have all of the support or all of the information they need. And so I think one of the important things about your audience is that politics isn't just for politicians. When you leave us alone to do what we want, you get what we give you. But when people actually hold us accountable, when they lift up and, and you can love and respect what a Biden and Harris administration is going to do, but we are a better people when we make certain we keep an eye on what's going on, when we talk to our state legislators, when we talk to our mayors and our city council members, when we talk to our Congress people, and when we celebrate successes, and then we ask for what we need. Mm-hmm. We have to make certain that protesting in the halls of power become a part of the triumvirate of our success. So I am excited about who they are and what they can be, but I'm even more excited about the people who decided this year to be a part of that process. And I don't want them to sit down. I want them to stay on their feet and stay loud about getting good done. I heard you say one time, um, it's not magic, but it's medicine. Exactly. And that's, that, that was like, I understood that so crazy. So, Well, I mean, look, because sometimes... 
with any job, you try to make it seem much more complicated than it is because you want somebody to let you keep the job. If anybody mm-hmm. can do it, they, that means they can replace you. Mm-hmm. And so I think voting and politics have become wrapped up in such anger and, but also shadows. And it seems you're suspicious because you don't really understand all of it. Mm-hmm. And so my point is, it's not magic. It's like we have a disease. We have a disease of racial injustice in this country. It is not going to be solved with one vote. It is going to take vote after vote, like pill after pill. It's like you know, radiation or chemotherapy or just you know, taking mm-hmm. your vitamins. We got to do it over and over again because if you do it once and think it's done, you're just letting the disease sort of reinforce itself and create a new variant. Our mm-hmm. job yeah. is to constantly attack it with that medication so we can shrink it but we have to remember that doesn't go away when you stop voting for it. It just finds a new way in the door. Yep. Mm-hmm. That uh quote you helped me because I um Thank you. I, I I be getting into arguments on Facebook more than I like to admit. Which is the first issue. <laughs> uh, yes. That's why he looked at me like that. Cause we be, you know, he be telling me to stay off of it. But I but listen, these are people that I went to school with mm-hmm. and I know personally, but for some reason they are... Um, they know everything about politics all of a sudden. Like, I, I was in their grade. I know the grades you made. But all of a sudden, you know everything about politics. And then I just, you know, they just, they get under my skin sometimes. But I, um, the main, one of the main things that I really hate is when they be like, they vote don't count. So, you know, they'll argue with you back and forth. Why y'all going to vote? Your vote don't count. So I was, hopefully you can help me get rid of them again. But with that, with that quote, that was good. But. If you got some more ammo for me, please help me out. Let's use a, a sports metaphor. Uh, Pharrell just mentioned LeBron. LeBron mm-hmm. doesn't just go out on game day and shoot and then skip practice. He mm-hmm. doesn't only show up for the games he likes. He's there at every practice. He's there at every game because he knows that if he stops showing up, somebody either on his team or in another team is going to get better. Mm-hmm. They're going to get what he wants. They're going to get to where he's going. So politics is the only institution I can think of where we think you do one thing and you've now succeeded at everything. Mm-hmm. We have to stay engaged in politics because the other team is practicing. Yep. The other team is doing its job. And yep. so if we decide that we don't have to do our job because we have one success. That could have just been a fluke. We've got to keep mm-hmm. doing the work. We've got, and, and not only that, you don't only have to practice, you got to do the before work, the exercising, the, the sleeping, the eating. You got to do all those things right to get you in the shape, to get to the place where you can even be in, mm-hmm. the, in this posture. And so I would say it in this way. If you think you can be LeBron just by waking up, then you're going to get the <laughs> same results as every person who woke up thinking, I'm going to be LeBron today. But if mm-hmm. you do the work, And the work in politics is voting. The work in politics is protesting. The work in politics is holding people accountable and asking them what they're doing. I don't know of a single business owner who would put a 15-year-old in charge of their money and leave the store for four years and say, I'll be back in four years. Make sure all the change is here. Make sure you've done a good job. Who -hmm. would do that? But we Mm -hmm. do that with politicians every time. When you elect someone and then just hope they do their job while you're gone, you're going to get exactly what you pay for. Wow. I'm loaded. I'm going to Facebook and go <laughs> off today. And you can take credit for everything I say. Um, you're awesome. You, you, 
Listen, I wish I can just put it in a way like my brother, man. He he just, but I I feel it. I'm I'm like blushing, and and <laughs> I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm happy. I was looking forward to this. I heard you also write okay. novels, like romantic novels. I want to know more about that. So in law school, I wanted to write a spy novel. Uh, my ex boyfriend was a chemical physicist, and he sent me his dissertation to read. I'm like one of five people who read it. <laughs> and it was interesting. And so I created this idea for a spy novel, but it was 1999. There were no black espionage writers in America. No one had gotten published, really. Oh, man. Uh, and that, been women, so, that means it was going to be so good. <laughs> well, and also there were no women who'd been published really in espionage. And so I was I had two strikes. <laughs> and so I... I was talking to some publishers. I told them the idea. They loved the idea, but they were like, well, but that's not really what we do. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I know I've read about spies and I know I've, you know, seen black characters. And I remembered, well, basically you were reading romance or I was watching General Hospital. So I just made my spies fall in love. And I went back to publishers, but this time I sold it as a romance, killed the same people, used the same technology and they published it as romance. And so- Selena M- Montgomery, my alter ego, was born. And I had to have a, a pseudonym, not because I was ashamed of it, but I was finishing up law school and I was doing a master's in uh, public policy at uh, Texas. Me. Yes. I'm just saying, excuse me. Oh, <laughs> well, the point is, this is when Google was just starting. And so if you Googled my name, I just published a paper on the operational dissonance of the unrelated business income tax exemption, which is not anything that someone looking for a romance novel wants to read, usually. And so I had to have a separate identity, one for my tax nerd side and one for my romantic suspense side. I think you need to make a tax attorney spy novel. Hey, <laughs> look, I could do, well, I have a new novel coming out in May. It's a, it's yeah. my first legal thriller. And she's not a tax ator- attorney, but I do have an attorney. Is this one under um, Selena Montgomery? No, it is being published to Stacey Abrams. Okay, let's get it. Congrats. That's amazing. Thank you. Has Thank it, you. Have any of these uh, books been adapted to screenplay for film yet? Not for film. So I'm working with CBS. They bought the rights to my serial killer romance novel for a television show. So we're working on that. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm open to conversations because they're really fun. There are eight of them. Wow. So, you listen. You just sounds. Uh, let me just, look. You just kind of. You kind of really do have us all three gushing. We're yeah, just like, 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 look. You, you, you. <laughs> 40, 47, 40, 47, Like two years Very older spent. than me, and I just feel like you so accomplished. Like I just feel like, damn. I need to, as soon as I get off this podcast, I need to go do something. Like I just feel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're on you're on you the know, podcast because clearly you've done something. Oh yeah, okay. Well, look, I, I appreciate that. Thanks. I was just like, yo, I'm just like, sitting here listening to you and shrinking. Like, he was like, man, man, I need to go do something. <laughs> I gotta go do something. Why are you talking? He was like, yeah, I did. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm just shrinking. Like, by the way, let's just you know what? Let's do this right quick, right? 
Yes. How many people listening to this right now? Because when this comes out, it's going to come out, right? How many people listening to this right now? You're on a treadmill. You're on a Peloton. You're on a bike running. You're on the bus. You're in a transit. You're just getting the, you're on your way to work. Mm-hmm. How many people are late at night when you get a moment or traffic on the way home? How many people are listening to this right now? How many people feel motivated? I feel motivated. To go do something. And, and, not, see? and not just not, not just like something, but like do something like effective and yeah, impactful yeah, yeah, yeah. and positive. And by the way, well thought out. Yeah, see, that's the thing. The well thought out. When she just said from 2010 to 20, like she knew. Yeah. Like, I don't even know what I'm doing this weekend. Like, like, <laughs> like I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta, I, listen, you, you inspire me to, I gotta, I gotta step it up. Yeah. Now people well, are motivated. I've got another book for you. Well, thank you. Okay. I've got another book for you. It's called Lead from the Outside. And that's my book about how you structure your life to do more stuff or whatever it is you want. Because the whole point that I wrote that one in 2017 in part because it's it's hard for someone to say, oh, I want to go do something if you've never been taught how to do. And so mm-hmm. often we try to go from dream to success and nobody tells us about all the pieces in between. And so mm-hmm. this book is really about you know how to have ambition because so often we're told if you're in the minority or disadvantaged or marginalized, people tell you you can't do it. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you, here's you deserve to have ambition. You deserve to believe you can do these things. But they yeah. also need to tell you, you are right to be afraid. Fear is real. It is omnipresent. <laughs> and you got to learn how to navigate it, that the the pressures you're going to face and the needs, the failures you're going to face are all real, but they're not fatal. And so lead from the outside was really my attempt to kind of talk about how okay. we all get to, we, we all have the ability to operationalize our dreams, but it's not as easy as they would have you believe. Going back to what Pharrell said about you know, the notion of the American dream, they make it think, they make it sound like you think of it and then you can just make it happen. Not everybody mm-hmm. has someone who can loan them $10,000 so they can set up a shop in their, you know, their dad's garage. Mm-hmm. Some of us are trying to find $10 so we can pay off <laughs> that. Leg. And yeah. the, the $10 or the $10,000 or the $10 million, we're not guaranteed anything, but we deserve to know how to do it. So one person described my book as lean in for the rest of us. You read all those other business books that tell you about how to make your dreams a reality. I'm here to tell you, it's going to be harder than that. But here's some of the ways I've learned how to shortcut it. When do you find time to actually sit in front of the computer and write all these books? Is it something that you do, like you wake up early in the morning and dedicate an an amount of hours or at night? Like uh, that's the hardest. She's running uh, circles. What it is, Scott, is that she's running circles (laughs) around people in reality. (laughs) And at this point has to like keep herself like curious and occupied by just like writing um, fiction. It's amazing. That's that's literally, she's running circles. It's crazy. Well, I, I will say this. So the two books that I've written most recently were both, you know, Lead from the Outside and then Our Time is Now. But even the ones I wrote when I wrote man- Romance, my first romance was I wanted to write. But thereafter, basically, they either wanted a book or they wanted their money back. So you learn how to write fast because people, because <laughs> yeah, so the money was money gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, part of what I talk about is that I love writing. It is a part of who I am. And I can imagine each of us has something like that. Something that if we don't do it, even in a small way, we're not full, we're not complete. 
writing is that for me. I've just learned how to use it to also make a living and use it to to help me organize the work that I want to get done. And mm -hmm. so anytime you can take a passion or a talent and use it to create a, a living, that's, I think, the ultimate in opportunity. And I'm just grateful that, you know, I have a skill that I can use. Mm. Wow. You, you are like, you know how, like when you go to fill out a application, it ask <laughs> yes. you what all your races are. And then like, when it's <laughs> just something else, it's like, where you're racially ambiguous, um, you were, you are categorically ambiguous. <laughs> well, I am, I am in good company. Listen, it's beyond gender. It's beyond race. Like your way of looking at things, man. Yeah. Or woman. <laughs> That's amazing. I just wanted to just tell you that one more time, you know, and you have been a delight. Yes. It has yes. been a, a, an honor and an opportunity to be on this with you all. My team was incredibly excited that anyone that you guys knew my name. So just thank you on behalf of the squealing fans in the Fair Fight universe. And on my personal behalf, it is an honor to be here with you all. We're honored. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to Other Tone wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram. New episodes drop every Monday. Other Tone is hosted by Pharrell Williams, Fam Lay, and Scott Venner. Executive producers are Pharrell Williams, Scott Venner, and Moses Shoyola. Engineers are Mike Larson and Mike Hernandez. Theme music is by Thundercat. Other Tone is produced in collaboration with the team at Gilded Audio, Ivana Tucker, Whitney Donaldson, and Nick Dooley. 